to First Fuel, a podcast bringing you perspectives on the role of energy efficiency, energy management and demand response in the energy transition taking place in Australia and around the world. I'm Luke Menzel, CEO of the Energy Efficiency Council, and this week I'm joined by Alison Reeve. Alison is Deputy Program Director for Energy and Climate at the Grattan Institute. Uh, hello, Alison, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Luke. It's great to be here. You've recently joined the Grattan Institute, uh, but you spent well over a decade working within the Commonwealth Government helping to shape energy and emissions reduction policy. And you've been involved with all sorts of things over the journey, but um, one of your recent gigs that people might be aware of was leading the task force that developed Australia's national hydrogen strategy. So I was just, uh, before we get into the, the, the broad topic of today's uh, uh, discussion, which is, of course, um, industrial emissions reduction policies. I was interested in your reflections on what it's like um, being on the other side of the fence, um, going from working within government to working for a think tank and in a position to provide some frank and fearless advice in a more public setting. I mean, I think I certainly um, appreciate the ability to be to be frank and to be fearless, but I think the other thing that's interesting about it too is that um, you're not just focused on one level of government and one party. So, you know, you can talk to oppositions and you can talk to parties who are in power and you can also, it's been really good working with some of the state governments through this process as well. Like I actually started my career in the New South Wales government and it's been really refreshing to go back and look at state policy um, as well. I mean, I, I think the thing is that, you know, public services don't have the monopoly on advice to governments anymore. And I think that's actually really good, you know, yep. that, that advice is contested and that, you know, lots of different um, groups and institutions like, you know, the Energy Efficiency Council or Grattan or whoever else um, can actually put these ideas out in public and, and mm. debate them. And I actually think that's really healthy. So, yeah, it's been pretty fun so far. That's, uh, that's great news. And you make a great point about the ability to kind of think around the role in our federation that the federal government relative to the, the state government plays and actually a, a really key theme in the report that you released earlier this week. Uh, so let's get into it. The report, of course, is towards net zero practical policies to reduce industrial emissions. Um, we're going to step through some of the key recommendations of uh, your report, Alison, and congratulations on it. It's a, it's a, a fantastic contribution to the debate. Um, but I thought it might be worth uh, starting with just sort of characterising the, the challenge before us, if you will. There's a consensus at the state and the federal level that we're uh, they're tracking towards net zero emissions. Um, the, the federal government indeed has said they want to do that as, as soon as is practicable. Um, but this this uh, big chunk of emissions from the industrial space, it's, it's not one that we've got a whole lot of policy around here in Australia, certainly not over the last last number of years. So uh, can you characterise the big big chunks of emissions that exist in that in that space? Because I, I think that there's there's potentially quite different approaches to dealing with different aspects of, of uh, the industrial emissions challenge. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the, the industrial sector's got tens of thousands of industrial facilities making it up, hmm. um, at least 50 end source activities that create emissions. But altogether, that adds up to about 30% of Australian emissions altogether, right? So that's almost as much as electricity and it's much bigger than transport. But I think we tend not to think about them that much because we can't see them. You know, we, mm. we all switch on a light and see a car every day, but we don't see an LNG platform or something like that every yep. day. The way that we decided to divide it up for this report was to split it into um, emissions that come from fossil fuel extraction and processing 
emissions that come from mining and minerals processing and metals, and then emissions that come from manufacturing. Um, and the reason we decided to, to split it like that is because those are sort of quite distinct um, groups of activity and they're quite distinct. It's very unusual. You do get some companies that operate across a couple of those, but mostly most of the companies fall into one of those categories. Within each of those um, sort of categories of, or subsectors, if you like, the emissions basically come from three main processes. You've got fugitive emissions, which are the methane and the CO2 that is released when you're extracting and processing fossil fuels. You've got combustion emissions from burning fossil fuels, and you've got process emissions from carrying out chemical reactions. Um, and again, so when we look at, you know, who's big and who's small, um, the fossil fuel extraction and processing group are the largest share of um, industrial emissions. And they also have a lot of um, the, the fugitive emissions mostly come from them. The combustion emissions kind of spread across all of the sectors mm. um, and process emissions tend to come from manufacturing because that's things like making turning gas into ammonia or turning clinker and lime into cement and those sorts of stuff. So I guess the key message is it's an incredibly diverse sector with um, lots and lots of, of different players, but if you start to chunk it down, it actually makes it feel a little bit more manageable when, you, when you're talking about what's uh, what's available <laughs> and what policies could unlock things. Problem solving 101, Alison. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> so, um, so we've got the we've got these three big chunks, but then one of the other vectors, which you sort of were, were very clear on, which goes to goes to what you were just saying, is uh, I, I guess the there's a, there's a few really large emitters, um, and then there's you know a whole lot. Of of, uh, of relatively smaller emitters, and one of the key mm. insights from your, your report, um, which we certainly endorse here at the Energy Efficiency Council, is that, that you need to take quite a different approach to ad- addressing um, those different types of businesses. Do you want to just speak to that? I mean, just to give people a sense of the numbers, it's 194 large facilities that make up 80% of industrial emissions. Mm. And then there's 9,000 and something that make up the remaining. Um, Now, those 194 large facilities, um, those are all very large, belong to large corporations. A lot of them are listed companies, so they're subject to, you know, shareholder pressure and um, fiduciary duties and so on. They also um, have pretty easy access to capital, most of them. Um, You know, they can go to the global capital. If you're BHP or Fortescue or whatever, you can go to the global capital markets and get money when you need money. Um, they also are able to have dedicated staff who manage their emissions and manage their energy and so on. Whereas if you're talking about, say, someone who's in that remaining 20%, that might be, say, um, a small family business that runs a foundry in Western Sydney. They're not going to have a dedicated energy manager mm. or someone whose job it is to have a handle on the emissions, and it's a lot harder for them to get access to capital. Um, so that's kind of why we said in the report you really need to distinguish between those two different groups because they have differences in capability, um, differences in access to money, um, and also actually just differences in the emissions, right? The fugitive emissions are pretty much exclusively come from large companies. Um, you know, you don't tend to have kind of small family-run LNG platforms. Um <laughs> 
but you know the and the process emissions as well mostly come from large companies. So combustion is spread across everybody, um, mm. but those other two groups pretty much sit with the large companies. Mm. So sort of quite distinct challenges, both in terms of the the, the emissions types we're dealing with, um, yeah. uh, but also the kind of the sophistication of the businesses that are operating yeah. in those different spaces. The other thing I think there too is to think about which level of government is best placed to target those groups. It's it's very hard for to run, you know, a policy that goes after lots of small businesses from Canberra because you're just not close enough to them, right? You, you just don't have the ability to, to get out there and to see how your policy is hitting the ground and so on. Um, state governments are much better at doing that because they're just literally closer um, and they also have more policy levers that they can pull. They have more powers um, under the constitution. I don't want to get into constitutional law 101, um, but it's sort of a, a slightly underappreciated part of the emissions debate is how few policy levers the, the Commonwealth government is actually able to pull. Mm. They can regulate large corporations, but they can't regulate small businesses other than through tax. Mm. So that's also a reason for divvying up the task between state governments and federal government. Well, I, for one, am looking forward to inviting you back for a future episode in which we can do that constitutional law 101 as it relates to emissions, because <laughs> that actually sounds fascinating to me. I may be in a relatively small sample, Alison, but uh, my ears have pricked up. But um, uh, going to that point around state governments, one of the things that I, I actually I agree with you, um, there is a there is a, a real role for state governments um, uh, in in this space. They're close to the ground. They have a, a, a really good understanding of the of the industries and where there are their capabilities and how they can support them. But of course, that all, all also creates issues in a federation because you've got this huge disparity of sophistication in within the governments themselves and in the policies that they're interested in in rolling out. And so you can and and this happens. It's not just an Australian thing. It happens in the United States. It happens in in Canada. And so you you have um, this big gap between the the, the state that's most forward leaning in terms of energy efficiency policy, for example, and emissions policy, and the state which is you know largely disinterested and not doing anything on the ground. How how do we grapple with that as a nation? Look, I think you can do it, you can do it well and you can do it badly. Like the worst possible approach to take is to sort of take a lowest common denominator approach, where no, where you know a state that's not doing anything says, well, I'm not going to do any more than what anyone else is. Mm. And I mean, I think another thing that comes into that too is sometimes state governments feel that they have to completely reinvent policy from the ground up, yep. whereas actually there's <laughs> I almost want to say there's no new problems in this space, right? <laughs> Some, someone will have thought about this before yep. and the more that um, states learn from each other, I think you tend to get better policy outcomes. And then I think the other thing that often tends to work too is where states actually actively compete to be better than each other Mm -hmm. and sort of keep a bit of a mandate to be innovative. Mm -hmm. So you're not trying to sort of lock everyone into having exactly the same thing, um, but to, you know, lock people into everyone aspiring to have the best Mm -hmm. um, version of what we've got, um, but then to innovate beyond that. Um, I thought it was really positive, actually, when we were researching this report, we talked to a couple of state governments about the state energy efficiency schemes. Now, I worked on the New South Wales ESS when I worked for the New South Wales government, when it was very, very young. I think Mm. it was, you know, only sort of three months or something into it. And I worked on the New South Wales GGAS before that. And then for a while, um, back in 2012, I worked on the federal government side of saying, should we have some sort of national energy efficiency scheme? Mm. And then I went away from energy efficiency for a long time, 
came back and what was really interesting was that there's so much more cooperation going on between states now who have those energy efficiency schemes. They're looking at what each other is doing. Um, I think Victoria and New South Wales have recently done like a joint public consultation. But just that actually realising and recognising that all of their schemes will run better if they aren't sort of trying to stay in their own silo, but if they're actually learning, you know, from each other and creating that scale by cooperating, I think that's been, that's a really positive thing to see. I know it is really frustrating sometimes for companies to have to deal with, you know, six or eight different sets of state laws. Mm -hmm. Um, But the solution to that is not always to have a single set of national laws. Sometimes it's actually just better to have people, you know, realising that they don't have to reinvent the wheel. Well, that harmonisation piece, which you pick up in your report, and when you when you hit upon the role of the state schemes, is is a, as you say absolutely crucial. You can get a lot of the benefits that would accrue from a mm. from a national program by sort of having a, a pretty proactive harmonisation agenda. Um, yeah. And the I guess the other thing I'd say is that in a in a decade which has been um, uh, can I say pretty contested in terms of climate and energy policy, there has been a resilience in the schemes. They've gotten through that decade in one piece which there's no way that that would have been guaranteed had we had a single national scheme at the national level. So I think there's that there's that benefit to the state-based approach as well. Yeah. But we're doing exactly what I expected we do, which would go sort of delving into nerd topics that aren't actually you know, <laughs> core business for this report. So I'm going to get us, get us back on track because um, we'll get back to the schemes in a moment um, perhaps, yeah. but I kind of want to start with um, your prescription, which, um, which you and your, your colleagues there at Graddon have put together for those, those large emitters. And it's really all about um, re- reforming and strengthening the safeguard mechanism. Am I right, Alison? Yeah. So, I mean, what we were trying to do with this series of reports was to give government things that they could do straight away and in particular look at what they already had and sort of say well you know you already have this piece of policy in place here is how you could make it better or you know make it achieve more or whatever and I think the the safeguard is a really good example of that so just really quickly in case there's any listeners who don't um, understand what it is it's a federal policy. It applies to industrial facilities that emit more than 100,000 tonnes a year, and it gives them what's a baseline, which is effectively a cap that the emissions are not meant to go above. The way that you work that baseline out is by multiplying emissions intensity of production, you know, tonnes of CO2 per tonne of product, um, by the number of tonnes of product that they produce. If they go above the baseline, they're meant to offset. If they're below it, um, they don't get rewarded, but they also don't get fined. Now, that's kind of the, the guts of the scheme, but it's got a lot of things in it that means that it doesn't place any downward pressure on emissions. So there's a lot of administrative loopholes that companies can use if they're above the late, the baseline to get themselves a new baseline. I really wish I could do that with my tax, like, you know, just sort of say, oh, yeah, no, I'm above that threshold. I would like to claim the right to set myself a new threshold. Um, I, I think you should try that just as an experiment. Uh, that could see, be some performance yeah. art, some safeguard mechanism performance art. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the, what it means is that most facilities have got at least 10% headroom underneath their baseline, which means there's no incentive to reduce their emissions and their emissions can actually grow and have been growing Mm. since the safeguard has been in place. What we recommended to make it work better was, first of all, to make some tweaks to how those baselines are calculated so that everyone has to use the same industry average emissions intensity of production (laughs) to calculate their baseline. That will mean that some facilities will be above 
and some will be below, right? Mm-hmm. But that's okay. We, you know, we, we just sort of kind of the point, really, isn't it? <laughs> it's, well, it is sort of the point because we know that there are things that they could be doing to yep. pull themselves back under. Yep. Um, we also know that you know there's good availability of offsets if they want to go down the offsetting route. Mm-hmm. Um, so we really don't think it's a big deal to do that. And then the other thing that we said was that given that the government wants to pick up the below baseline crediting idea from the King Review, which is to reward people who are well under in their emissions intensity, if you are going to implement that, what that will do is over time change what the industry average is. So you should reflect that in the baselines. And what that will do over time is make the industry average emissions intensity a bit lower and it will start to, in some sectors, ratchet baselines down. Mm. Now, the beauty of doing it that way is that in sectors where it's difficult to reduce emissions, so that's particularly the case for things that have those process emissions that I talked about before, like making cement or making ammonia, Um, those their baselines won't move and that should be fine because at the moment they need a, a really transformative technology mm, to decarbonize. Mm, they, mm. they can't really ratchet down very well. But there are other subsectors that can ratchet down and so we can start to pick that stuff up. So that was quite, that was our major our major recommendation. Our other one actually, um, which is sort of quite important too, was to set a pretty stringent approach for new facilities that mm. are coming in. And the reason for doing this is that in the industrial sector, facilities have really long lives, so sort of 30 to 40 years. And when you think about this being 2021 and 2050 being the year that you want to have net zero emissions, you don't have 10 chances to make a decision to get to being a low emissions asset. You probably have one. You have one large asset renewal decision, and it's really important that when that decision is made, you get the lowest emissions facility possible because you are locking those emissions in for another 30 to 40 years. So that was the other thing we recommended for the safeguard was that you should put in place a pretty stringent new entrant benchmark um, so that new facilities that are getting built are getting built at significantly lower emissions intensity compared to the uh, to the status quo. Well, it sort of grounds that whole concept that we always talk about, about, you know, the, the, all these homilies around policy certainty, right? Mm. And sort of having the clear framework, understanding of where we're, where we're working towards, the, the utility of targets and what the task before the entire economy is, because oh. it, it's not that's not just like some hand-waving, amorphous, um, you know, it's not, they're not platitudes. It's actually like about business decisions that are being made around how to set up um, an industrial facility that is in prospect, or indeed um, also one that's being refurbished, um, mm. that, you know, and, and a refurbished facility, and that it's happening every year. You know, again, yeah. you're sort of now been extending the, the life of that um, for the next 20 or 30 years before you have another opportunity to, to do that really big process change that you want to get the value out of, out of that equipment. And so having a clear sense of where we're going, um, you know, through policies like this um, uh, can, can really support businesses to make good decisions that aren't going to leave them up, up the creek without a paddle when, you know, we change our mind in five or ten years about, you know, what our aspirations are in this space. Yeah. I mean, I think the the thing to um, keep in mind too is that the process of making those decisions is quite long. Yep. You know, it, it starts maybe five years before the facility is due to actually, you know, reach the point where it's going to turn over. Hmm. So a, a company that's trying to plan for what it does, it needs 
frameworks that it knows are not going to chop and change every three years in order to be able to build those into what its decision is. Otherwise, it's going to take the decision which is the lowest risk. And that one is not always the decision that is the best one for emissions. Hey team, in June we lost one of the giants of our sector, Chloe Munro. It was a heart-wrenching loss for her family, her friends and all the people who worked with her over her many decades of public service, which is why a broad cross-section of organisations, the Clean Energy Council, the Energy Efficiency Council, AEMO Arena, Carbon Market Institute, CFC, Dell, Monash University, the list goes on, have come together to found a new scholarship program, the Chloe Munro Scholarship for Transformational Leadership. The scholarship is open to emerging and mid-level female leaders in the fields of clean energy, energy management and carbon abatement, and it's the perfect way to honour Chloe's legacy. She spent countless hours with so many of us sharing her insights, testing our thinking and supporting our growth. The scholarship program will carry forward that spirit and support the women following in Chloe's footsteps. So if you're one of those women, uh, or indeed you know someone that is, I encourage you to visit cleanenergycouncil.org.au forward slash Chloe, where you can find all the information. Applications are open now, and they close at the 26th of September 2021. So I encourage you to spread the news far and wide. Thanks. All right, well, um, we've got a clear um, prescription there for those larger emitters. We can now, I think, circle back to our conversation around the, the, the energy efficiency schemes that are, that are dotted around the country um, because your recommendation, Alison, is that um, I think the, 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 the emission reduction task um, in those um, smaller industrial players, largely manufacturers, um, the, the heavy lifting is done by those state-based programs, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess what, what happened was we, we sort of looked at it and went, you know what, those schemes have actually been really good at picking up all of those small repeatable activities that save, you know, a very small amount for the individual in question, but when you aggregate them up, they're actually quite a significant chunk. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what you need when you're talking about 9,000 sites around Australia, right? Yep. Each of them might only have, you know, 100 tonnes of savings over 10 years, but you get all of those and that's like, that's a nice big chunk to bank towards your net zero mm-hmm. target, right? So what we were saying was that we think state governments should um, think about making better use of these schemes to leverage more industrial savings. Now, I know the industrial sector has not been easy for those schemes because it's not... It's not homogenous. It's not homogenous, exactly. It's not like doing commercial lighting replacements where an office block in Darwin is the same as an office block in Melbourne Mm. and they're the same as an office block overseas pretty much as as well. So it is a lot more diverse and every site's different, but we thought, well... You know that there there could be ways of um, finding things that are repeatable on those sites, and then the other thing about getting that scale of repeatability would be getting more cooperation between states. So, you know, one way to build the scale of doing, say, um, a variable speed, you know, variable speed drives or something like that. Mm-hmm. Now, someone who has a business in New South Wales might be really, really good at doing that, but because they have to go through a separate process of getting themselves accredited to operate in Victoria, they can't, it's a little harder for them to take that learning and that scale and do that activity in Victoria and allow Victoria to benefit from that scale. So things like just recognising accreditation across states would Mm -hmm. be great. 
Keeping the same activities, being eligible to create certificates is also a thing that gives you scale um, because that also means even if you were talking about individual facilities doing their activities on their own rather than using energy service companies, you know, you've got facilities that or you've got companies that operate facilities in several different states. You know, so being able to do the same activity across all of your sites also helps to build scale. So those are sort of the things that you could do to to start to push. And I mean, I think I think you and I, or maybe uh, with Rob Murray Leach, had this conversation a while back too. That often just getting people to have a look generates uh, a lot of interest, yeah. and also just people figure out, oh yeah, there are some things I could do, and I can go off and do those by myself, which is great. You know, yeah. the the role of being able to build up that energy service sector and have that available for the industrial sector um, is, is something that you would also get if you were making more use of those energy efficiency schemes. I mean, the other thing is too, um, there's only New South Wales and Victoria at the moment that let them into the industrial sector, and there's actually no way of knowing, you know, what kind of savings are just – how many $20 notes are lying on the street in Perth that we don't know about mm, yet mm, no mm. one's picked up? So it is kind of hard to, to know how much activity there would be in the other states. But uh, I reckon it's got to be there, right, because it was there in New South Wales and it was there in Victoria. So going after that and helping those states get their net zero targets would be good too. Well, I think you make a really good point around kind of the ecosystem that gets built up around those schemes. They they uh, they support the development of sophistication within businesses and within business networks. You know, understanding yeah. that there's been a successful project um, that probably not isn't necessarily rocket science, but perhaps isn't just common in the particular subsector that you're working in. And you're seeing your peers start to implement that. That gives you confidence that that's something that I can pursue without you know blowing at my production line, um, but then also supporting the the development of a sophisticated ecosystem of providers, you know, product suppliers, um, and, as well as the, you know the folk that can work with the business to support them. And going back to your earlier point, often you don't have an energy manager on site. You don't have someone internally that's going to be in a position either have the the expertise or, frankly, the bandwidth to drive oh. this solo and so those yeah. external these external providers become incredibly important um, and while we don't have the data really to say what the opportunities are in New South Wales versus WA to pick the you know two ends of the country um, I think we can we, we can properly hypothesize that you know it's it's not going to be the case that you know WA has has magically sort of de- developed a whole lot of expertise in this space in the absence of any kind of government policy over the last certainly the last uh, decade or, or, or so um, well exactly and I mean I, I think if that was the case then our overall energy productivity would be a lot better mm. compared mm. to other countries and it's not so I, I think, you know, we can see some stuff when we compare ourselves to other countries that, um, you know, the amount of, of GDP that we create for every gigajoule of energy that we spend is pretty low. Um, so that would tend to imply that there are opportunities there for people to improve. There's an element of this that we think about quite a bit. Um, I'm not sure if it got picked up in, in your report, but it's also the, just the availability of data on, on industrial mm. sites. Yeah. And so, you know, for it's been a great boon for Australia that for many decades we had very cheap 
electricity and gas. And but but one of the one of the downsides of that is that there was, hasn't been a great focus on energy management, as there has been in some other economies where energy prices have been higher. So um, as our energy markets has transformed, we've obviously had some fairly uh, uh, challenging price spikes um, in very recent memory. Um, you know, it, we don't haven't necessarily had either the, the the data internally with industrial sites, or indeed the the expertise internally to, to to manage the bits that businesses can have some control over. Um, they can't control what the hell's going on in the NEM necessarily, but they can control what they're using on site. And, and one of the things that we often reflect on is that there's a there's almost a nation building task to roll out metering around around the country and support businesses to do that metering because it goes to that point you made earlier which is once they've got the data or they've sort of thought about it a little bit um, and they see that you know there's a there's a boiler on on site that's using vastly more gas than the other ones um, they think oh well there's something going on here maybe I should do about it yeah. but very often particularly on gas they just don't have that sub metering at that level so it's just you yeah. know they've got one bill and, and and one meter at the at the at the side of the property and and that's all they have to go on have you did you pick up anything around the role of just just data in terms of building that sophistication within businesses? I mean, I think the problem we bumped into is, ah, there's no data here. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, I totally agree with you that we could do with some better data. We get very focused on energy prices but not on energy costs. Mm. What should matter overall is the total cost to you, not actually the price of each unit. What's on the bill? Yeah, exactly, what's on the bill. And that what you're sort of talking about with, with those gas boilers is actually about, and for businesses, it's about managing their costs. Yeah, you know, and, and I think also having that, that bandwidth and the capability and so on to actually know what to look for. Yeah, and actually to know what's going on in their site. And, I mean, again, I think that's kind of your, your difference between the big sites and your small sites, although I think some of those big sites are probably just as bad in terms of having one boiler that's using way more than the other, but at least it is someone's job to go around and look at each boiler. Yeah, it's almost, and this is not a not a critique of of businesses and the way they've approached energy management. Um, it, it, but it has, there has been a culture in Australia um, for for some time, which is changing now. But it, it was there; it was fairly well established. The way they managed energy costs, energy imposts on the business was through a procurement process and locking in the yeah. last unit cost and then just le- letting it alone. And that was rational. Um, yeah. At, at the time, because there was other other areas that they could, you know, more productively engage with in terms of improving their productivity or whatever it was, um, but that's changing. And the and so we're we're in this moment of a, uh, a rapid upswing in terms of the, the needs of business or to have a sophisticated energy management strategy right. in place. Um, so the circumstances have changed around businesses as much as anything anything else. And so I guess one of the things we're sort of reflecting on collectively, you and I and, and many others in this space is how to support businesses on that journey so they can build that sophistication as quickly as possible but also find um, the people uh, around them that can support them on that journey. And there's a there's a role for Energy Efficiency Council members, there's a role for, you know, good government policy that's supporting them on that journey. There's, I mean, one of the things that we're very uh, interested in spending a lot of time on here is um, building the cohort of people that can support a business to implement an energy management system. Not necessarily ISO 50001, but just, you know, something which is consistent and that can help them drive that continuous improvement because there's a whole whole lot of businesses, especially at that smaller level, that they've just never had one because they've never seen the need to have one before. And so there's, yeah. we're all on a journey on this, Alison. 
Yeah, for sure. So you, you spent a big chunk of this report thinking about some really, you know, to, to use the, the phrase um, that you used in your title, practical policies um, that uh, we could get on with straight away. But um, you also acknowledged that there's some, you know, some longer term transformation that will be required for the industrial sector to get to that net zero target and um, and that we need to get the ball rolling on some some big ideas um, and some and some platforms that will allow us to, to to start that process because we know it's going to take you know it's a it's not a couple of years it's a couple of decades for us to work through that do you just want to speak to that so the third part of our report was really about what do you spend this decade doing so that in the next decade you've got everything you need to start going through that really quite unprecedented rate of industrial transformation um, that that is going to need to happen. And like I said before, because you've got this long-lived asset problem, right, that you've got one chance on each industrial asset in Australia when it turns over to lock it into the lowest possible emissions that you can do, that you can manage. And one of the problems that companies have is we know that there's a lot of investment that um, governments here are doing, governments overseas are doing about those transformative technologies that will allow facilities to be low or zero emissions. So, you know, things like making steel with hydrogen, um, actually saw some, something today too, like making glass with hydrogen instead of using gas. But those things are still, they're not commercial, right? If you're sitting there and you're, trying to put together your front-end engineering design to do your plant turnover, you can't cost those things because they're not real yet. Um, And what that means that when you're facing a big investment decision, if the lowest emissions option isn't quite commercial, then you're not going to take it unless the government steps in and fills that gap. Mm. So what we said the government should do is establish what we called a future fund to make sure that when some of those big decisions do come up for industries where there's a strategic advantage in Australia keeping that industry, um, so Green Steel is a really good example of that, that they have the money available to, to get the lowest possible emissions outcome from that facility turnover. The way that we recommended it, that, that they should do it is – Uh, similar to how the Future Fund runs now. So basically you hand over some money to the Future Fund and they invest it in the share market and you use the income from that over Mm -hmm. 10 years to create yourself a pot of money that is then used for that. It's effectively grant-type funding, but you're not putting it onto the government balance sheet because – the bill, I mean, these are kind of like billion-dollar projects, you know, yep. multiple-billion-dollar projects. These are not the sort of things where a $10 million government grant is going to make the difference. It ha- it's going to be an order of magnitude larger than that. So that was kind of what we said is, you know, we need to start thinking about what do we put in place so that when those investment de- decisions come round, we don't lock in a high-emitting asset that um, means that we're stuck with a long tail of emissions. And the other thing we said too was, look, it's time to actually accept that not every facility in the industrial sector is going to be compatible with a net zero future. Mm. Um, so I would not see this sort of money as being the sort of thing that would go on a coal mine or potentially not even on an LNG facility because if you look at where the rest of the world is going, the markets for those are going to dry up. So where we should be putting that money is into things where we know that that facility can have a low or zero emissions life and there's an advantage to having it in Australia. 
I guess it's it's uh, supporting those industries that we do anticipate making that transition. Yeah, exactly. To do so effectively as possible, right? Yeah. It, it's interesting. It, it, the, the other thing that the, the creation of such a fund um, does is it once it's established, um, it's there as a resource for future governments, you mm. know, if, if any political persuasion um, to to leverage off um, to sort of support this transition as it's working its way through rather than constantly having to sort of work through a, a budget process um, to, to have that kind of certainty both for government and for industry that that, that resource is there for this kind of great national yeah. challenge that we're working our way through I think could could give a give a lot of confidence. Yeah, I, th- I think that's important because if you think back to say, um, like the decade of the, the first decade of the two thousands and what mm. happened in the renewable energy industry, and it was went through these continuous boom bust cycles all the time because funding was sort of dolloped out in three year cycles, and yep. if you're trying to build a wind farm that's got a fifteen year payback on it, it's really hard to do that. So, you know, if governments are going to want to take an incentives based approach, having that solid framework there that people can plan around and that actually takes into consideration the timelines that people have doing that planning is really important because otherwise you're just going to stutter Mm -hmm. the the whole time. And, I mean, I think the other risk you end up with that as well is you actually will have companies that go, we just can't afford to keep that facility in Australia anymore. And that means, you know, you you lose jobs um, and you lose GDP. And, um, you know, often that sort of stuff it washes through on the macro level, but on the micro level for individuals and for communities, it's very, very painful. Yeah, I think we've actually got a task before us to build some credibility in this space for exactly that reason. And it's it's about people leaving and it's also about people um, investing over the next decade, because this is mm. this is starting to become like a a, a one of the the risk factors um, that uh, particularly larger organisations with a global footprint are considering is like that you know stable carbon policy you know something that we can plan around and we can invest around and so yeah. I don't think it's quite there I think we've still got the opportunity to um, to build some confidence in that space but um, if we keep vacillating then that 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 window will close and we'll, it, it will really start to hurt us. I Yeah. It's something that we have to grapple with at some stage. And I mean, I think Tennant was suggesting in his paper that one of the ways to to do that is actually to do our own carbon border adjustments so that we don't get that offshoring of... Um, I wasn't just suggesting it. Um, he was yeah. uh, f- uh, uh, giving a, a full-throated endorsement, I think, yeah. uh, of, of that as something that should be actively considered by policymakers. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the things we said in our report was that you shouldn't um, have, you know, emissions-intensive trade-exposed industries too much protection on those because when you start, if you're having a declining baseline, that is kind of a form of protection anyway because you're not asking people to pay the full cost of all their carbon. You're only asking them to pay the bit that's above the baseline. Um, I think you, I mean, you could, where there's that wide disparity between facilities in the sector you could end up with some facilities that are just too far above and that that actually pushes them out of business. And I think that's a trade-off that you've got to make. Um, mm. We're kind of, 
we're out of the easy choices territory now. Like when you actually start to think through what it means to be at net zero, there actually aren't easy choices. There are lots of choices like this that are hard decisions um, to make. And I mean, I think this comes back to what the other role of government in this space is, is where you have industries that are becoming sunset industries the role of government is not to keep propping those industries up by shielding them from policy or by subsidising them. It's actually to ameliorate the fallout and the impact on citizens and on consumers of those businesses um, sunsetting and, and, and leaving Australia. Um, you know, and we've sort of seen that in some of the regions where coal-fired power stations have closed down, is it, you know, what the role of government should become in those areas is not to keep the coal-fired power station going. It's to help workers find new jobs. It's to help the the area attract, you know, new industry and, and that sort of stuff. Um, so I think that's kind of the other role of government. And we, we, did, we didn't talk much about that in this report um, because that's kind of a, you know, that's a six-month report in itself. Um mm. But it is, I think, a very important distinction to make between different types of, of government action is to think about who are the sunrise industries and who are the sunset industries. It's definitely food for thought. Are we uh, reflecting on that uh, that comment that uh, that we're out of easy choices? I think you're absolutely you're absolutely right. It underlines the importance of being clear about where we want to get to. Yeah, and I mean, look, it, there are things we can. There are things that governments can do now, right? Yeah. There are things that companies can do now. It's just a matter of getting on with them. Like one of the things that we wanted to have a sense of in this report is that, you know, net zero can look like a really big, scary task. But <laughs> the, the way I think of it is kind of like, you know, and you know this from your own life, right? Big, scary tasks don't get easier if you procrastinate about doing them. Yeah. You know. If you actually make a start, you find that it, it is actually easier than you thought, and there's more to it than um, than what you can more, more things that you can do than what you thought, and that's what we need to do. We actually just need to get started. I think um, uh, you just told Australia to do its homework, Alison. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, I you know I say that as someone who has like a pile of tax returns sitting here <laughs> that I haven't done, um, and I'm planning to do tomorrow. I promise. Um, <laughs> All right. Well, uh, look, we're out of time. Um, it's been great catching up with you, Alison. Um, uh, it's certainly been heartening to see some of the, the leadership from uh, from some of the, the big companies out there, the big industrial companies like Bluescope over the last few years. But the policy has been lagging a little way behind, and hopefully this report kicks along the conversation about how we can change that. It's, a, I think, a really uh, constructive contribution. So, so thank you for that, and uh, all your colleagues of Grattan and. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you very much. It was great. All right. Well, that wraps up this episode of First Fuel. If you have comments, you can find us on Twitter. Alison is at Alison underscore Reeve, and my handle is at Luke Menzel. And to keep up to date on the latest in energy efficiency, energy management, and demand response, you can follow the Energy Efficiency Council at EE Council. If Twitter is not your thing, you can email the team. The address is firstfuel at eec.org.au, and make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to First Fuel wherever you get your podcasts. Now, if you enjoyed this chat with Alison, you'll want to get on to an upcoming live recording of First Fuel on 16th of September. We'll be catching up with the IEA's Tim Goodson to unpack their Net Zero Roadmap report and really getting the global view on many of the matters we chatted about with Alison today. We'll be broadcasting that recording live. So as always, if you want to join us, visit eec.org.au forward slash podcasts. But for now, it's goodbye from us and we'll catch you soon.